tears on my pillow that won't dry on the road beyond my ears. I've no sorrow, but today I don't walk alone. Step series. Come on, y'all. We're going to have uh, Mike or Joey come up and do our joke. Hello, everyone. Hope, unfortunately, it to settle with Joey tonight. Um, I know, I know. Um, I hate me too. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not anymore. Thanks to God. Um, that's it. Thank you. No. All right. Thank, yeah, I am Joey, and I'm your joke teller for the evening. I, I have a uh, joke by the Conference of Proved Literature um, of the Grapevine. Hope you enjoy. Hey, bartender, what now? Do lemons have feet? No, lemons do not have feet. Uh-oh. What? I just squeeze your canary into my gin and tonic. There we go. Canaries are yellow. Yeah, but anyway. Thank you. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and my name is James. Thanks for joining us tonight. In a minute, we're going to start our two-minute meditation, so please take a moment to get situated. Please turn off all devices that make noise or might distract others. Please take this time to get connected to God. Let the craziness of the day drift away and ask God to help you stay focused on this step study tonight. If everyone's ready, we're going to start the meditation. Thank you. 
to say the Foglight Prayer, which are listed on both the screens. God, let your love shine through me like a father, so those who are lost and dying can find your love through me. There is a solution from the big book, page 17. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I've asked Amy to read Appendix 2, Spiritual Experience. We read this because the main purpose of the 12 steps is to have one, so it's kind of important to know what one is. Please welcome up Amy. I'm Amy. I'm a recovered alcoholic. The terms spiritual experience and spiritual awakening are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Yet it is true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. In the first few chapters, a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a ban against all a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. Herbert Spencer. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Uh, please refrain from disturbing others by talking or constantly getting up and sitting back down. This is a tech-free meeting, so turn your phone off or put it on airplane mode. Uh, I'm going to welcome up Bobby back. 
Um, I don't really remember how many sessions you did already because we had that break yesterday. Sorry. Okay, perfect. Uh, sorry for not telling any of you about that uh, last week if you showed up. Uh, please welcome up Bobby. Already. I haven't even gotten up here yet. Hi, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. My name's Bobby. Hi. I love this venue, just so you know. Um, I've actually been running a meeting in my house for a couple of years before the pandemic started, and then we moved it over to Zoom, and then we tried to get it back into my living room before I bought my house. And on day one, one girl brought COVID and everybody got sick. <laughs> everybody got COVID. So I was like, all right, let's move it back over to Zoom. And then um, I bought a house and we finally got situated. And I was like, I came here to speak for Mike last year when you guys had like a break between uh, um, somebody who was doing a series. And I fell in love with this venue, just so you know. I loved it so much, I thought about it all the time. And I was like, man, I wish I had that venue like Mike's got over there in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I was talking to my girlfriend, and I was like, we need to find a venue like that up north and get this meeting out of my living room into something like that. I just think it was so amazing. And so she's like, well, let's start looking. So we called every church in my neighborhood in my city. I live in Margate. And they either said no they didn't call me back, or they already they said, we already have an AA meeting here, and we are not interested in a second one. <laughs> and I was like, rude. <laughs> okay. Uh, long story short, we never found this beautiful sanctuary that I desired ever since I came here and spoke the first time. I did find a location, by the way, Tuesday night, 7 p.m., women's meeting. It's called Sister Staying Sober, Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're meeting at 5400 West Atlantic Boulevard at Fellowships Recovery Community Organization. And uh, right now, that's what we got going on. But I do pray for a venue like this. And my whole point of the story is, is that I love this group. You know, I love the fact that they pray on their knees before they even come in here and open up this meeting. I just love this whole setup. So I'm grateful to be here. Yes, I was some, like I had three people out there. Mike must have told them. I don't know what happened. But they had three people say, I heard you're excited that it was canceled last week. And I was like, well, you know, yeah, I guess, you know. Um, no offense to the meeting, obviously. But, you know, speaking is something I like to do. I'm not one of those people who are like, I hate speaking. I really do love speaking. But it still doesn't mean that it doesn't cause anxiety and that it doesn't cause feelings. And my anxiety manifests in different ways. It doesn't necessarily manifest in a way where I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so nervous. I can't get up there. I'm so it doesn't do that to me. What it does to me is um, around 4.30 at night, right before I have to head out to head over here, it says, ah, you really shouldn't do it. You know, you've already been through so much this week. It's just, you know, it's kind of like a Netflix and chill night. I mean, your baby misses you. Your husband needs your support. You know, I just don't know. Maybe I should just call Mike and tell him I'm not feeling good. Oh, he's not going to believe you. Well, tell him you were in contact with somebody with COVID. Oh, well, that's a lie. I, that's kind of what happens to me, you know, sometimes. So last week, and I'm doing a, a book series on uh, Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m., which is so late for this lady. Uh, so that's always the night before I come. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, all right, cool, man. It's closed. No biggie. It's cool. 
Um, but I am excited to be here because, of course, by the time I drive all the way through the highway and get here, I'm always really happy to see everybody, and it's always good. So we're going to talk about step two today. What I just did for you there was it's called lollygagging. I was lollygagging so I could waste a little time so I don't have so much time to You know that lollygagging. My daughter knows what lollygagging is. She's four, Okay. I say that word all the time. It happens to be one of my favorite words. So the other day I said, come on, you're lollygagging. She's four years old. And she says, I'm not lollygagging. I said, you don't even know what lollygagging means. And she goes, yes, I do. I said, well, what does it mean? She says, it means that you're telling me that I'm taking too long. (laughs) I was like, wow, she's smart. (sighs) So anyways, we're on step two. You know, last time I was here, we did step one and We talked all about the disease of alcoholism and all of its physical components and how that looked in my personal life and how we could be relatable and some of the people who were listening. Uh, You know, I did touch on the fact that there were several types of alcoholics and there were even several routes to becoming an alcoholic. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you got here as long as you're here. And that you have fully conceded to your innermost self that you live with that illness because I'm not here to diagnose you by any means. In fact, the literature says in very subtle ways it's none of our business to do so, that it is the own individual person's responsibility to determine that for themselves because not only could we potentially be wrong, but we might even prejudice somebody who is interested in getting help the moment we start to put a label on them. So... um, you know, that physical component was imperative in regards to step one. And we're going to talk a little bit about a deeper level of alcoholism. You know, when I talked about alcoholism being a physical component the very first week that I was here, I said that we couldn't safely drink. I mean, that was clear. Uh, We put it into our body. We develop a phenomenon of craving that creates this desire to continue drinking despite our consequences. But then I also ended it at some point in my speech that not only was uh, are we not safely able to drink, but we were um, also not to safely stay sober, which was a mind boggler for a lot of people. You know, somewhere in the literature it talks about if um, the physical component was the only issue that we suffered with alcoholism, then it would be a very simple solution because a solution for the physical component is not to drink. If I don't put alcohol into my body, well, then I will not create the, the desire to drink more. A physical craving cannot happen unless you put that thing into your body. I don't know if you guys ever stripped yourself from sugar, for example, but once you've completely sugar, you know, stripped your body from sugar, the physical craving does leave you. doesn't mean that we don't think about sugar. It doesn't mean that when we walk by a chocolate cake or a fresh big apple pie, it doesn't smell good. But that physical craving for it is removed until when we decide to cave into what's going on in here, take a bite of the cake, and next thing you know, if you're anything like me, you just ate a two-gallon cookies and cream bluebell ice cream. Um, returning full of remorse and guilt and shame and physical uncomfortability and asking why did this happen again. And uh, I also mentioned to you at that point somewhere that I, I have these things going on in my life and more than just alcohol. In fact, anything that had brought me spiritual or mental, emotional comfort, I have tend to utilize it to the point of a habit. 
and eventually some sort of a physical, emotional, mental dependence upon it, and eventually it becomes just a full-blown addiction. I can't live without it. It starts to deteriorate all the good things in my life. Things that I used to like and enjoy are no longer satisfying anymore. Relationships are broken. Other people are seeing that I seem to be a problem when I myself cannot see it, even though it is clear as day. I'm continually pointing my finger at you, not recognizing that I am the common denominator in all of my problems. This could happen with different forms of alcohol throughout our journey. Why can't I safely stay sober then? Well, here I was. I put down alcohol. I was separated from it for weeks, months, maybe even years. But some point in our, our journey, we pick up that very thing that has caused us so many problems that we have so much evidence to prove that it doesn't work for us. Why is it that we continue to go back to something that serious? You know, it was taught to me that I was living with no defense against picking up the very thing that wanted to kill me. I shared with you guys the first week that I was allergic to penicillin, and I found out because I stepped on a yellow jacket bee, and I found out I was allergic to a bee as well that day. And they prescribed me some things for that um, allergy as well as some antibiotics called penicillin. And I, I suffered from an allergy manifestation of that medication as well. And even after all of these years, I've never once thought that I can safely take that medication in any form whatsoever. But why, even with all the facts piled up on me, am I returning to this thing called alcohol? It seems to be the ruler of all things in my life. I believe they called it King Alcohol. He was the father. He was the spirit of the universe. He was everything or he was nothing. He was my ultimate authority. I don't know if you guys could relate to that, but alcohol dictated to me every action of my life, whether I was going to have a job or not have a job, if I was going to be a decent mother today or if I was not going to be a decent mother today, if there was going to be food on the table or if there was not going to be food on the table, if I was going to be experiencing freedom or if I was going to be experiencing captivation from hell itself. So I was living without a defense against the very thing that wanted to kill me. That's a very scary and most helpless place indeed. Dr. Young, one of our seed planters in the very early ages before Alcoholics Anonymous was even developed, was treating a man who um, became friends with our co-founders at some point on his walk. His name was Roland Hazard, and he suffered from alcoholism greatly. And he went and seen several different types of professionals, one very specific professional who had a uh, very high education and is very well known today as Dr. Carl Young. Carl Young was treating Roland Hazard for alcoholism, and he even told Roland at this point, and I've told some people in my life too, but in a different words, when I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired of your BS, he said, listen, what you experience is something so severe that even my medical professional opinion cannot help you. And Roland was devastated. Here was a guy, can you imagine going to the best doctor in the country and them telling you, I'm sorry, man, there's nothing I could do to help you. And Roland said in, in utter disbelief, is there just no exceptions? 
There's just no exceptions. And Dr. Carl Jung said, you know, indeed, there is actually a few exceptions where there have been people just like you that I have seen something absolutely amazing and drastic happen in their life to help them transform the way they saw things, the way that they began to perceive and respond to life. There is some type of, uh, and I can't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but some sort of rearrangement in the way that you think. The way that you see life and how you respond to life, you know, and, and he's referring to something much bigger than human aid because he himself can provide human aid. He had all the knowledge. He was trying to do some type of moral psychology on this individual and even with all of his knowledge and experience was having a difficult time reaching the core problem. And what he's referring to is something deeper than any human power can perform on another human being. And our literature talks about it being called a spiritual experience. It was read up here today. The book also refers to it as a spiritual awakening, a personality change, an entire psychic change. In fact, it's referred in different forms and different ways all through our literature. Page 567, titled The Spiritual Experience, is noted in asterisks a couple of times throughout the early stages of our books because they are trying to tell you in a very subtle, gentle way, like, check this chapter out. Because there is a solution. There is a solution that is going to help solve the problem. Now, I don't know if you know you're an alcoholic or not, or if you just happen to be coincidentally attending meetings. You could just be here hanging out. I don't know. But if you're still wondering, there is a lot of alcoholism assessments out there in the real world, outside of the circle of Alcoholics Anonymous. They have one called a biopsychosocial. It takes about four hours to be completed by a licensed professional to determine the severity of your illness. They have one called the CAGE, which is a five-questionnaire to determine whether or not you potentially are struggling with alcohol addiction. They have another um, one called SAR, also going to tell you whether or not you are struggling with any form of addiction. And it's really cool is that the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous also designed an assessment to determine if you have the disease called alcoholism. And by the way, the professional world outside of AA does not call this disease alcoholism. Only members of Alcoholics Anonymous call it alcoholism. It's called alcohol addiction or substance use disorder. But our founders knew that assessments were important. In fact, they actually, you know, contributed a few words to the medical professionals and also the um, religion, the religious background people as well. 
If you want to find the assessment, it's located in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on the very first paragraph of the first page of the chapter called We Agnostics. They're setting you up here. It says that when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit drinking entirely, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you drink, you are probably suffering from this illness called alcoholism. I mean, that was the most powerful assessment I ever took. I'm going to repeat it again. When you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit drinking entirely. That means I can't stop starting. Or if when I start, I have little control over the amount I'm going to take that evening, I may be suffering from this illness called alcoholism. If you could answer one to two of those, you're probably right where you're supposed to be. Or you may have answered yes to both of them, like my story. But here's a powerful little comment that is literally right after that. It said that if this be the case, you're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Pretty powerful, if you ask me. It doesn't say in that book that you may be suffering from an illness which will require X amount of days of PHP followed by a few days in IOP followed by uh, 30 days in OP followed by six months in sober living followed by 90 days in three-quarter way living followed by reunification of your spouse and children followed by a good income and a nice pair of shoes. doesn't say that. It says that you're suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience will conquer. Wow, isn't that crazy? On that page, it also begins to describe the unmanageability that step one was referring to all along. You know, when we came in, I don't know if you guys can relate, but I used to think that the unmanageability that step one was talking to was the homelessness the criminal activity, the prostitution, the behaviors that caused me to lose my children, those were things that I recognized in my life as being unmanageable. But what I didn't realize is that if I just stopped drinking, most likely, I'd say a good 90% of those things are probably going to come to a halt. It just works out like that, you know? Like, I didn't go to jail or prostitute every time I drank, but every time I prostituted and went to jail, I was drinking. Those two things happen to have something in common with each other. But, in fact, the literature talks about it in a whole nother variation. I'm going to paraphrase. They talk about the unmanageability in step one being irritable, restless, and discontent. Easily annoyed by my fellows, uncomfortable in my own skin. Everything and nothing seems to satisfy the boredom I feel in the pit of my soul. Having trouble with personal relationships, can't seem to hold down a job because everybody is at fault. I am the victim, and I don't see anything you're talking about. Anxiety and depression. I was told that I didn't have anxiety and depression when I came in here. I said, I, I said, yeah, I have a diagnosis. They said, no, you're experiencing fear, 
and self-pity. I was pissed. (laughs) I said, let me go get my prescriptions. Fear and self-pity, indeed. Although I didn't know it at the time, I was so full of fear and so full of self-pity. That does not mean, please don't get it wrong, that depression and anxiety do not exist in this human world. It is a real illness in which a lot of us do experience, and seeking outside help is imperative and definitely recommended. But there is also a level of fear and self-pity that blocks the truth from our reality. Now, these are the things I had to worry about. You know why? Because those things that I just described to you seem to intensify the longer I stay away from alcohol. I put down the drink. I stay abstinent for a period of time. Those things I just described get bigger and bigger and bigger and louder and louder and louder. And if I'm still here and still sober, it is only by the grace of God We all experience a grace period coming into recovery. If you have not done the work and you have not been lifted by the Spirit, then chances are you are still living in God's grace and be so grateful for it. But I would not take advantage of it another minute. That means, like, get a sponsor today before you leave. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care what she has to offer you. If that person could sit down and go line for line for the book and teach you the knowledge that they have, then take it. That's it. Who cares about how much time they have? It's not about quantity. It is all about the quality of what the person can give you. Next page of We Agnostic, it says that lack of power was our dilemma. We had to find a power which was greater than ourselves, which was beyond human aid, that was going to solve our problem, dot, dot, dot. Now, this is a part part of my story that I always like to share, that I used to think that alcohol in all forms was always my problem. I'm sure a lot of you guys can agree with me, right? I mean, every time I did drink, I caused problems, mentally, emotionally, physical problems, financial problems, legal problems, relationship problems. I mean, it seemed very evident that alcohol was my problem. Come to find out, alcohol has never been my problem. Alcohol, over the course of my life, had become and had developed into what I like now to call my solution. I'm the problem. It's the way that I see the world. It's the way that I process information. It is my reaction, my responses to the human world and to the things that are going on in this universe. It isn't about the alcohol. Unfortunately, alcohol was my solution and I became allergic to the very thing I was utilizing as my solution. Now I can no longer take it effectively. It doesn't work. Just like if I were to take an antibiotic, which I know will solve my problem, but now I'm allergic to it, so I can no longer take this anymore. I have to seek out a new solution. 
And here's the thing about alcoholism, whereas not so much another physical allergy, I could always just go get Bactrim or some other antibiotic. But with alcoholism, I can't drink alcohol in any form at all. I happen to have a reactant to it that causes me more problems than good. It's been that way every single time I have ever attempted to utilize it to solve my problems. So here's the thing about that. There's only been one thing indeed to solve the me problem. I've tried everything. In case you're just wondering if there's something else out there, let me explain to you. Before I ever put a drop of alcohol into my body, I had found 125 other solutions. It started with boys. When I was in elementary school, I hated school. I used to have this disgusting, eerie, yucky discontentment feeling in the pit of my stomach every time we had to go to school. I freaking hated it. I failed the second grade because of how many absences I had in school. If I wasn't calling out sick, I was in the office for being in trouble because I would do anything to get out of being in school. So I found that boys, cute boys particularly, gave me a very good feeling, even in the second grade. So I would have a huge crush on one boy. That crush would get me up out of bed and motivated to attend school for one day at a time. And I would like that little boy for as long as it would last. I would build a tolerance for him. He would give me attention, most likely, and I was no longer interested in him, of course. And then the pit of impending doom would set in again in the pit of my stomach. I would begin to hate school all over again until there was a new, shiny, adorable boy that came to mind. I would develop a crush on him, and so the story would repeat itself again and again and again until cute little boys in general just did not work anymore. It did not do it for me. I don't know if you know me or not, but I'm quite funny. <laughs> and I would use my humor to get lots of negative attention in school. I was always the class clown. The class clown role often got me in trouble. But I loved getting in trouble. When my teacher would call the principal on me, I would stand six feet tall and walk out of that room thinking I was the coolest thing that hit the street. And I would go spend the rest of the day in the principal's office, and every time another kid would have to come up there to do something good and you know, noble of them, they would witness me at the office, and I would think, I'm so cool. <laughs> and this filled that void for some time until it also stopped working for me. My friends started getting involved in other things in school, and they started to have a good, fun, interesting life. I was deemed the potential dropout in the fourth grade and put into a specialized program at that young of an age. Nine, 10, and 11, I was in a dropout prevention program. 
It no longer worked for me. I moved on from one thing to the next to fill the void that was commonly hovering over my life. I wish I could tell you it was a diagnosis of something that a magic pill would have fixed. But I know now today that I was suffering from an illness called alcoholism even back then before I ever touched a drop of alcohol. See, what was happening is, is that I was developing relationships with temporary solutions to fill a hole that only one thing is possible of filling. And um, I would build tolerances for all of it, including my children. I love them more than anything in the world. I would die for my children. But even them were a mere solution to a problem much deeper than the love of your own children can fill. Unfortunately, my children could no longer deem me a purpose to stay on the straight and narrow, as they never did to begin with. But I fought alcoholism hard and long, trying to figure out every way possible to have alcohol in my life, but still also have a relationship with my children. Ultimately, just like I said at the beginning, alcohol was my king. He was the ultimate authority. He was everything or he was nothing. So at the end of the day, he won. I lost my children six times to the state of Florida before I was deemed a terminated parent. My rights were terminated here, which meant I had no say in what happened to them nor where they went and were raised in their life. That's what alcoholism did to a girl like me. Now, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have my phone. I can't see. Oh, I can see the time. It's perfect. Um, I came in. I was 27. 27 is still fairly young to come into Alcoholics Anonymous by the grace of God. He had a plan for me long before I could even acknowledge he existed. And um, when I came in here, I was considered a long shot. I 1,000% am not at all anything like I was at 27 years old when I got sober. Not even close. But some really cool things happened to me in early recovery. I came in here without any knowledge or desire. Now let me rewind. That's not true. I came in here with absolutely no knowledge and no idea that I was ever going to stay sober. I, of course, had a desire to stay sober many years before I got here. The problem was is that I never believed that it was possible for a girl like me because I was the long shot. I was strongly genetically dispositioned to alcoholism. I had the learned behaviors, being raised in a very poor neighborhood and poor schools, raised in very violent and criminal neighborhoods and environments growing up here in South Florida. I had all the odds against me. I had not one single solitary soul that lived here on the face of the earth that was willing to hold my hand and walk through this journey of life with anymore. 
and I had not one idea where my three children were. And I went to a halfway house in Pompano and uh, Maureen Donatio, I'm gonna say her name today because I'm, she's on my heart. And um, that woman took me in with absolutely not a job, not a penny to my name, and most definitely had nothing to offer this community. And she let me move in rent-free, and she said, go get yourself a job, and we'll see what happens for you. I started going to AA every day because I had nothing else to do with my life. It's not, it wasn't the first time I'd been to AA, but it was the first time I was really truthfully there with not one ounce of alcohol in my body. Anytime I had been there before, there was always some form of alcohol in my body. This time, I was completely bone dry. And uh, one day turned into a week, a week turned into two weeks, and I got a sponsor, and I started to hear things in the meetings. And they were speaking of something most magnificent. But I had not wrapped my mind around the idea that I would ever achieve the greatness that these individuals were discussing. And they were talking about the power of God. They spoke about God just as though they knew him like they knew anybody else in their life. And they had such a deep and intimate relationship with God, and maybe some of them were acting, and maybe some of them were telling the truth, but back then, I didn't even have the mindset to differentiate one from the other. I came in here with a humble mind, not even knowing I had a humble mind, because Lord knows I thought I knew everything there was to know about everything there was to know. But something happened to me when I came to AA. You guys spoke in a language that ultimately made me realize I did not know anything about this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I needed to come in here, sit down, and shut up and listen. I didn't feel confident enough to even say my name's Bobby and I'm an alcoholic. Because a girl who knows everything that there is to know about everything that there is to know about everything is to know really needs to find out what's going on before she opens her mouth. So I had a level of humility that was working for me. And um, I realized very early on that um, I had a fear. I didn't know it was fear. I had a fear that Alcoholics Anonymous would not work for me because they were speaking of a God I did not know. All kinds of thoughts of worry and fear flooded my mind in the early days. I used to think, man... I think I have a huge disadvantage coming in here. My mom, you know, she raised me. She was 16 when she had me. And my dad was 17, and they separated when I was only, like, two years old. And I went back and forth from mom's house to dad's summers and Christmases and Michigan to Florida, Michigan to Florida. And I did that all my childhood. And we went to my grandma's house every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. And not one single solitary memory of anybody talking about God. They just didn't. And I started to think about it deeper and deeper. Were there ever anybody praying in my family? Was there any spiritual signs or symbols in the houses? There was nothing. In fact, I recall a couple of summers where 
I would go to Michigan, and um, one of my neighborhood best friends, her name was Mary Wolverton, God rest her soul, she died from an overdose recently. Her father was a huge Christian, and he was very well known at his church, or at least I kind of recollect that being a thing. And she would ask me every Sunday, can you come to youth group with me? You got to come, you got to come. They smoke cigarettes in the basement, and they play spin the bottle, and I was like, hell yeah, (laughs) that sounds like so much fun, you know, and um, I would always ask my dad, you know, can I, can I go, can I go with Mary to church, and he would be so annoyed that I would ask him that, and my dad was really cool, by the way, you just picture him, he had a long ponytail, tattoos, he was always really big and buff, and he was really cute and young, and everybody loved him. He was the life of the party, and he rode a Harley Davidson motorcycle, and all the parties were at our house. My dad was super cool. And every time I'd ask him, he'd get real annoyed with me, and he'd tell me, you, you don't need to go there. Those people just brainwash you, he told me. And I never knew what the hell he was talking about. But there were many times that I snuck away because my dad was drinking and doing his thing, and I would go to youth group, And I remember them trying to teach me um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I just had to remember these men's names in order. And I don't know, I went a couple times. I got to smoke a bunch of cigarettes and play spin the bottle. (laughs) That was the only memory that I could come up with. And then um, another memory came to mind later on in my journey. My, My mom used to date this guy who ran all the Flanagans across our whole country. He was a big time. He still actually does that. And um, he was also a Christian, and he used to go to this church, and I never went with him. But one day he got me to go, and I went, and they all sang and danced and, like, like jumped all over the stage, and they were real crazy as heck. And they were singing and loud, and as soon as they'd stop singing, they'd start doing something else that made me fall asleep instantly, every single time. And that was called preaching. But I didn't know it then. You know, I just... I. I went a couple times, I fell asleep, and I, I always remember they had snacks afterwards, that was cool. But literally, like, that was it. That was my introduction to God, I didn't know anything about him. Nothing. And I severely, I really truthfully believed I had a disadvantage here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I'd read the part in the book, but it, it, you know, I missed it, of course, until later on, many years of my journey, probably, where it said that um, those who come with a, something, I'm going to paraphrase again, I'm a paraphraser, but, you know, those who have known God their whole life may find it more difficult than those who come to Alcoholics Anonymous who knew him at all, that didn't know him at all. And I didn't know then, but I know now What a magnificent asset I had carried into Alcoholics Anonymous with me. I'm so grateful that my parents did not know God. I'm so grateful that I was raised in the home that I was raised in. I often think I'm so grateful that I was genetically dispositioned to alcoholism, that I was raised in the exact right houses, in the right neighborhoods, and in the right schools. And I experienced life exactly the way that I should have because God had a bigger purpose in me than I could ever wrap my mind around. So I can't never talk about God without crying because God literally gave me a life. 
so much more than just a life worth living. So I um, just kept coming back, because that's what you do, right? Keep coming back. It works if you work it. They preach those things to you in, in repetitiveness for a reason. It's going to eventually drill into your mind. You know, they say meeting makers don't make it. But let me tell you something. If you come here enough, you're going to start hearing things that are going to make you desire something more. And um, that's what happened to me. I got a sponsor, and when I first got here, I did not know I would stay sober. I didn't believe that I was capable of transforming into anybody than what I was. And uh, like I said, days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months. And um, I started to love the idea of having God in my life, and I don't even know where it came from. My sponsor told me to pray on my knees in the morning and at night, and she told me to memorize a few set prayers. And uh, every day I did that. One day, I was on my way to work. I currently, at the time, was living in Halfway on Dixie Highway, right next to the 101 Club in Pompano Beach. And I took a bus to Commercial in Dixie. So it was one bus, a bus 50. And back then, it was pretty cheap to get a bus pass. And I worked at Petco, still there, right next to Publix. And I hated that job, by the way. It was so bad. But um, it was getting me a paycheck, and I was making minimum wage. And back then, it was literally enough to pay one, work, one week of halfway and one pack of 305s, you know? And that's what I did every day. And one day, I was on the bus on the way in to work, and I was listening to some music on a little MP3 player. They were like this big. They were like 20 bucks at the store, you know? And you would download music from, from like Spot, not Spotify, something even older than that. It was like 2007. I don't even know if Spotify was out yet, maybe. Yeah. So I was like jamming out on my way. And, you know, you know, I liked to listen at the time. I used to like to listen to music that would get me all my feelings. And make me think of myself even more. <laughs> and that's what I was doing, just really self, fully self-absorbed. And I had a lot of thoughts going on in that early times because it was the first time I'd been real sober, you know, for real. Like, there was nothing in my body at all. And I had a beautiful vision that day of a bridge and, you know, looking back, I know that this idea didn't come just from my own thinking. What happens when you come to AA and you do a lot of meetings and then you read the books and then you listen to speaker CDs and a collection of things begin to become a part of your thinking and your mind. But I had a, a vision that day that I was on a bridge and there were a lot of really happy people walking this bridge together. And out on both sides of the bridge was a large body of water, and there were hundreds or thousands of people drowning. And they just couldn't even get a breath of fresh air, treading water, 
desperately in desire to be on that bridge walking in that beautiful, uh, happy road of destiny. And um, there were some people that were getting out of the water onto the bridge, and we were all on this happy, joyous, and free walk. And those people all had one thing in common, that they believed that God exists. And they were on that bridge. They had all gotten there from many different types of walk of life. It did not matter how they got on the bridge, but they were there. And, you know, back then, I had a different set of beliefs when I had, after I had that awakening. It transformed some more of my thinking, which we'll talk about next week. But back then, I used to think that, you know, there are a million ways to find God, but there is one. It doesn't matter what you call him. It doesn't matter how you get to him. But there is one, and we're going to talk about it next week, that all the things I've ever utilized in my whole life that were not God, I built tolerances for them. They no longer work. The impending doom and suffering returns again and again and again and again until I came into Alcoholics Anonymous I set down my ideas for a millisecond. I began to listen. I kept returning to develop the repetition in Alcoholics Anonymous. My mind became open long enough for my heart to crack open just a sliver. God came into my entire being and began to transform me from the inside out. We're going to talk about next week about what happened in regards to my spiritual experience, but I'll give you a little sneak peek. It was the thing that filled me all the way up that I've been seeking my whole life. So thank you guys for letting me share. And now we're going to have Mark come up and do the secretary's report. Hey, everybody. My name is Mark. I'm a recovered alcoholic secretary. Keeping with the seventh tradition, states that every group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. The baskets are now going to go around. While the baskets are going around, I've asked Allie to come up here. Where she is. There we go. Read the recovered statement. We read this notice at this meeting to explain why the group identifies as recovered rather than recovering, and what exactly it means to be a recovered alcoholic. Hi. Hi. I'm Allie, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Okay, recovered. We are not cured of alcoholism, recovered but not cured. That presents a conflict to some alcoholics. If we were cured, we would be able to drink responsibly. No, we are not cured. The allergic reaction to alcohol will remain with us for our lifetime. We have, been, we have been restored to sanity. That was the problem. The main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in the body. We are now sane where alcohol is concerned. Consequently, consequently, we have recovered.
1940-style big book sponsorship in the forward of the second edition of Alcoholics Anonymous. Of alcoholics who came to A and really tried, 50% of them got sober at once and remained that way. 25% of them so sobered up after some relapses and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. What we've seen, felt, come to believe and experience is that God has not changed over time, and neither should the sacred approach back to his loving arms. The statistics above suggest a 75% success rate. Can I please see a show of hands of recovered alcoholics? Okay, does anyone in the room need a sponsor? No, okay. Well, if you do, don't be shy to get with someone with their hand raised. So, a couple quick announcements. Broward County Intergroup is in Broward County. For the folks that don't know, it's where you get medallions, literature, big books. BCIC, Broward County Institutions Committee. Is, is anyone on that committee in the room? Nobody. Well, they meet twice a month at the 12-step house if anyone's interested in getting on the committee that brings meetings to the outside that we're so fortunate to come to. Some volunteer opportunities going on at Founders Day Picnic, and yeah, the 2022 Florida State Convention is being held right here in Fort Lauderdale Beach. Founders Day Picnic is Sunday, June 5th at Snyder Park, right down the road, 2 p.m. And come on, best group in town, um, Monday night. Third floor of this building, the, the big book comes alive. Um, we have a tri-chair of three folks in this room. We're going to study the big book. Fellowship starts at 6.30. Big book study starts at 7.15. Also, if anyone's interested, we have a little retail table back there. We have C's, mugs, large print big books, little red books, big book dictionaries for sale. We meet here every Thursday. Bobby will be back next week for her third session. Starting promptly at 7.15, we ask that everyone's here and, and courteous and begin at the sound of the bells. See you next week. Thank you. Uh, we have tonight's session and all other past speaker podcasts online for free, free at alcoholicsandgod.org. Again, please come to the Monday Night Big Book Study if you're interested. It's at 7.15 upstairs on the third floor. And if anyone feels like doing any service, we need to get all these tables and chairs up. So if you feel like helping us, feel free to. Uh, we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into
just when you laughing when you laughing yes the sun shining through but when you crying
Chase, here's that song you've been asking me for for a million years. I finally pulled it out the pulled it out the corners of my mind, and um, here you go. See the light. 
light Count my blessings when I go to sleep at night And I dream now Yeah, I dream now And everything's alright <laughs> Oh, man Going on 10 years old, that song is God bless I love you, Mike Chase Bye
Yeah.